Hey, everybody, a few housekeeping issues before we get to the episode. Number one, I would like to thank Dr. Kate Grant for her beautiful cover art, Dr. Cyrus Askin for helping with the show notes and the CME package for this episode, and Sarah Phoebe Roberts, our fearless producer for this episode. I would like to announce that there is CME and mock credit available for ACP members. You can visit www.acponline.org forward slash curbsiders to claim your CME and mock credit. And finally, I would like to say that the audio quality for this one is not our best. It was a live episode, so we are at the mercy of the acoustics of the room. We do have a bunch of future live episodes coming up, and we have uh, ideas on how to make the audio better for those. So please bear with us for this one. The audio is definitely still passable. Thanks again to all the folks at Chess for bringing us to this conference. And without further ado, here is our live show. So uh, welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is a live podcast that we're doing from Chess 2019 in New Orleans. Thank you all for coming. Uh, and... Before we get into things, I guess we should uh, tell you tell you who we are, since you're probably used to our voices, but maybe not seeing us in person. We actually have so, a disclaimer first. Oh, you want to read a disclaimer? I don't yeah. really want to read it, but it's there. I think you should read it as uh, fast as you can. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and for information purposes only. The topics should not be used to solely be used to diagnose, treat, cure, prevent any conditions or illnesses. Furthermore, the views expressed are solely those of the host and do not reflect any official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are, any, there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your homework and let us know when we're wrong. We have no conflicts of interest and we have no financial disclosures. Is that true? That is true. That is true. Uh, so that, of course, is the great Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And, of course, this is the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. That's probably the reason you're here this morning. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul, we get a, Paul has a lot of fans. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. So he also likes hugs, so after we're done today, please give him a hug. All true. Take a picture with him. We are going to be talking all about sleep medicine with Dr. Christine Wan, but uh, before we get into that and read you her bio, Paul is going to tell you what it is we generally do on this show. Paul, what do we do? It's such a great question every why, time. Why are, we, <laughs> why are we here? Why are we here, Paul? What is what is the meaning of life? More importantly, why are these people here? We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We claim to have an international team of over 20 correspondents. Claim. Um, I mean, we do. There's, there's one in England and there's one in Cambodia, so we're calling it. Yep. Um, we, it's kind of like an international airport, as long as they have one flight going outside. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can count it. We hopefully are using up-to-date insights and use multimodal learning. So it's not just the, the podcast. We have show notes. Um, there are videos. And it is 100% free. These are some recycled jokes. But if you're paying for it, then someone is scamming you. <laughs> okay. So before we get started, I just want to let you know that you can live tweet. If you happen to have a Twitter account, you can tag at the Curbsiders and hashtag Chess2019. We actually have someone that is currently... Uh, what are they looking at the account or anyways so <laughs> managing sure good stuff bonus points if you use uh, curb hashtag curb 19 I don't know what those bonus points mean it's kind of like you know whose line is it okay so what do our show notes look like we have algorithms we have title cards and we have different show notes that include pre-test post-test questions they come in different uh, forms and formats they are emailed to your inbox, there is a QR code at the end of this presentation that you can point your phone at to be signed up with uh, to the mailing list. We also have infographics, and we have several different graphic artists that work with us to 
uh, bring to you these, uh, these nice little cards that you can print off and put into your office or hand out to residents. We also have some snarky humor as well. So as you can see here, we have one that says, on the seventh day of Christmas, my true love gave to me herpes. And it goes through one through seven, some things to remember about herpes. And then we have, uh, this is from Dr. Kate Grant in the uh, United Kingdom, who does a lot of cartoon art and also does uh, uh, paint, which is why her handle is at KatePaint42. Very nicely done. They're all referenced and sourced. And the best way to reach out to us is through Twitter. So without further ado, I just want to let you know our episode today is Sleep with Dr. One. There are some things that we don't cover. We, this is in uh, separate episodes in the past. We've got uh, episode 116 that covers this with geriatric psychiatry, sleep, dementia, and behavioral disturbances. And another one, episode 12, which is specifically uh, insomnia. Exactly. Okay. So without further ado. Yeah, and I think we wanted to point out just also... Just much respect to you hardcore types who are coming to a sleep talk at 7.30 in the morning. And, and the palm critical care types who actually have 5.30 talks. Like, that is bonkers. I, <laughs> I intentionally did not become a surgeon. This is, um, and, and yet here we are. This is actually the second conference we've gone to that there's been a sleep talk at, like, 7.30. Yeah, that's very I feel great. like they're saying something. <laughs> but rather than complaining, how about I be thrilled to introduce uh, Dr. Christine Wan. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She's the director of the Women's Sleep Health Program. She is a board-certified sleep specialist who's also trained and certified in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Her areas of clinical and research interests include complex sleep-related breathing disorders and sex differences in sleep-disordered breathing and hypersomnias. Dr. Wan is the director of the Yale Sleep Laboratory. She is the associate program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program. She is chair of the sleep-disordered breathing section of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, member of the National VA Sleep Network, and sits on the board of directors of the Connecticut Sleep Society. Dr. Wan received her medical degree at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and completed her sleep, pulmonary, and critical care, and undergraduate training at Stanford University. And without any further ado, we are thrilled to introduce Dr. Christine Wong. I'll let you sit down so we won't both fall off the stage here. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty... <laughs> yeah, just be careful. Don't move your chair too far to the left, or we might have an emergency. But we will be well prepared to handle it if that's the case. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Wan, is it okay if we call you by your first name moving forward for the interview? Yes, please do. All right. Christine, please give our wonderful audience and listeners a one-liner about yourself and tell them a hobby or interest outside the world of medicine. Oh, great. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say there's this big picture of me plastered on the screen. <laughs> I've never seen myself six feet big there, so that was kind of uh, interesting. Um, I'm, so I am a mother of two young children, two wonderful girls, one of them who's going through this pre-adolescent angst um, that I'm dealing with. Um, so to uh, cope, I've been taking Taekwondo, and I'm currently working, for, <laughs> working towards my black belt. So we'll see. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Stress relief. Maybe I need how how, uh, how long does it take to work towards a black belt? So I've been doing it for about three years, um, and... I'm working towards that black belt. <laughs> that's, that sounds fun. Yeah. yeah, it is. Sparring. Is that your next goal, Paul? Or Paul? Is that your next goal, Matt? You've only been doing this for four years. To become a black belt? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it was always a goal. Sure, I mean, as of this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll defer to you, gentlemen, if you wanted to ask any questions of our esteemed guest. Paul? Sure, I'm, I'm amassing book recommendations. Um, so I'm going to ask, and it doesn't have to be a medical book, but. Just a book that you think most physicians should read or at least would enjoy. Most so, things. 
I'm sorry to say I haven't picked up a leisure book in probably a year or more, but I can tell you um, on my to-read list, I have a couple of books that I'm trying to get um, some time to read. Um, my, my colleagues have been very, very prolific, and they've um, just recently produced a couple of books that I'm eager to read. Uh, Dr. Schneeberg, who's our, um, our child psychologist who also does CBTI, she just wrote a book called How to Become Your Child Sleep Coach. And then Dr. Krieger, who also works with me, um, he just wrote this interesting book about how artists depict sleep throughout history, um, and I'm eager to pick that up, too. Excellent. Right. One of my favorite questions is uh, about favorite failure, failures. It can, it can be anything in your own personal or professional life that you've learned from, from a patient complaint to a death or something that has happened. What's your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Yeah, that's an that's a interesting question. Um, and actually, you're not the first person to ask me that question. Um, and interestingly, when I was asked this question, I was with my younger daughter. And uh, someone said, well, what's your favorite failure? And I thought about it. I couldn't really think of one. And then my daughter, you know, tugs at me and says, I know what your favorite failure is. And I asked her, what is it? She said, my sister. <laughs> yeah. Burn. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Wait, yeah. Wait, what did you learn so, did from you that? agree with her? I, I, I lost the thread. And then we high five. I didn't agree with her. <laughs> Another, another thing we like to ask, because a lot of the people, uh, ourselves and a lot of our listeners, are either trainees or interested in going into education, what is some good advice you've gotten along your career? And it can be at any level when you were a trainee or now that you're an attending physician. Um, I think, you know, I've gotten a lot of good advice um, from colleagues throughout, the, throughout my career. Um, I think one of the things that I do follow by is, you know, to, you know, pursue your passion um, as silly as that sounds, I think that's what um, makes you do great and succeed is if you enjoy what you're doing. Um, so I never do anything that I, I don't, I think, you know, I wouldn't be passionate about. Yeah. I think someone said it a, a little different way on the show recently. It was like, um, if something's not worth doing well, then, you know, it might not be worth doing. Um, well, Paul, Stuart. Speaking about doing well, do we have Pixel Week? Yeah, I, I think we do have some picks of the week. I think we can. I think we can get on with that. So st I believe Stuart predicted what our picks of the week would <laughs> That's be. That's right. I was trying to see if I knew you guys well enough. So, so which, which order are we going in? We're going Paul, you, then me. Okay? okay. All right. So Paul, here are your options for picks of the week. Okay. <laughs> Stoked. Either the Toxic Avenger. Great. Okay. Or the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. So which one would you like to talk about? It's. Um, By the way, I picked these without even talking yeah, to him. This is. He had no clue. <laughs> So I think, thanks, solid picks both. Um, I think I'm going to recommend Toxic Avenger. I, I feel like that's sort of the, the flagship property of the Troma Studios, um, run by Floyd Kaufman, um, which is sort of a, a punk rock movie-making sort of studio that um, broke conventions but still actually cared about cinema history. So I think if I had to pick one, I would probably go with, with that one, though Buckaroo Banzai has its adherence. Um, but yeah, so please recommend the Toxic Avenger as my pick of the week. Thank you so much, Stuart. By the way, he had no clue. <laughs> All right, so Matt, your choices are... A podcast, You're Dead to Me, or Jump Ropes. Well, I, I mean, in that case, I'm definitely going to pick the Jump yeah. Ropes. Yeah. Uh, I, def I definitely Jump Roped, uh, not yesterday, because I didn't bring, I should have brought it with me, Paul. That's, it's actually very travel friendly, so I should have brought it with me, but I did not. Uh, I, I would pick the Jump Rope, but my real pick of the week, so Halloween is coming up soon, and my kids are recently obsessed with Weird Al Yankovic, which. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, it's, it still holds up a little bit. There's some questionable uh, lyrics in there, but overall, it's, it's a fun listen. And I will be Weird Al for Halloween. I ordered a uh, wig, 
and a, a wacky shirt. It's going to be a great time. I'm really excited about Halloween now. All right. And uh, in the interest of what the this podcast is about today, sleep, my pick of the week is my pillow. No, not that one. <laughs> Actually, my pillow from last night. So just want to let you know, my pillow has a patented fill. It keeps my neck pretty much straight. And so I can wake up and at least feel a little bit rested. Um, so if you want my pillow, you can't have it because it's my pillow. Good stuff. Um, all right. I, I totally lost track. Paul, what are we doing? <laughs> why, why don't we uh, transition to a case? I think you're going to have Stuart uh, talk us about a name that we're not even trying anymore with. with yeah, that's right. It, it, it was Mr. S. Andaman. Well, it, it's actually Mr. Sandman. Okay, so Mr. Sandman, he's a 53-year-old male. He's got hypertension, obesity, diabetes. Uh, he's seeing us for... Uh, follow-up in primary care. He reports uh, overall poor energy levels, and he'd like us to check his testosterone levels. You see, now he works in IT uh, and sits at a terminal all day, all day long. Uh, he eats the standard American diet, the SAD or SAD diet. The SAD me, diet. What yeah. does that stand for? The standard American diet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. The standard American diet is the SAD diet. So. I see. Okay. Well. <laughs> well. I, I walked right into that one. All right. While he was a previously well-known boxer in the 1980s, now his only physical activity is yard work on the weekends. He goes to bed at midnight and wakes up around 6.30 a.m. So before we get started, uh, and before we start picking on Mr. Sandman and his messy sleep habits, let's, let's take a step back and just to kind of answer the question, why in the world do we even sleep? <laughs> I think that's a great question. I think that's a question that we've all been struggling with as sleep scientists. Um, you know, there are several theories out there, quite interesting ones. I think nothing that's been sort of panned out as definitive, but I can share them with you. So um, one theory is that it's evolutionarily beneficial for us to sleep. So for example, the inactivity and the energy expenditure um, uh, theory. So, you know, maybe way back when it was um, evolutionarily beneficial for us not to walk out in the dark, you know, because, you know, we could hurt ourselves, we could be, you know, at risk predators, you know, mosquitoes and bugs and whatnot. So maybe there was a survival advantage to being dormant or sleeping during the night. Um, more recently, I think, we're looking at more biological reasons for sleep. Um, so for example, you know, there's the restorative theory, the thinking that, you know, we build, out, we build up toxins or, um, you know, biological leftovers um, through all our activity during, during wakefulness. And as a result, we need some time to clear those uh, things, those toxins, the byproducts, um, and that might occur during sleep. So, um, for example, you know, we know that you know, the relationship with Alzheimer's disease, um, the increase in tau protein that's found in CSF when you don't sleep, um, we think that that's extracted from our brains when we do sleep. Um, the other theory is um, the whole brain plasticity theory, the fact that maybe memory is consolidated while we sleep. So, for example, during the day when we're, you know, up and around, we have a lot of stimuli coming towards us, and uh, our neurons are firing, they're making connections. Um, but we can't, you know, store all that knowledge. We have to really um, be selective, you know, from a, survival, from a survival point of view as well. And um, so the thinking is that, you know, when you go to sleep, there's a lot of pruning going on with the neurons, so that only those memories, um, those con neuronal connections that are important, uh, are left over or are strengthened during your sleep, and so that helps with uh, memory consolidation as well. So who knows what yeah. sleep is for? Um, <laughs> but it seems that you know there is some biological necessity. I mean, we sleep a third of our lives, right? We live 75 years, and 25 of those years we're spending in sleep. So it must have some important biological function. I think we're just trying to determine what that is. 
So, but we know we know it has impact. Um, so I, I guess it's funny because we're framing this conversation like we're trying to convince this patient that sleep is important, whereas I don't think I've ever had to convince my patients of that largely. But if you were going to talk to a patient about why sleep's important and how it impacts your sort of overall health, can you? What would you tell to, to Mr. Sandman or Mr. Sandman? Yeah, sleep is definitely important to our health. I think it gets lost in a lot of our. Um, you know, primary care or care that we give to our patients, but sleep has been associated with, or lack of sleep, I should say, or poor sleep has been associated with a lot of um, health detriments, especially cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, weight gain, hypertension. Um, there are a lot of epidemiologic studies that suggest that if you're uh, suffering from insomnia or if you're a short sleeper, um, so for example, you know, in the Penn cohort, they followed patients for about seven and a half years and found that those who were suffering from insomnia had a greater risk of developing incident hypertension. Um, similarly, there was a Norwegian study of over 50,000 patients, and they followed them for 11 and a half years. And these were patients who were naive to cardiac disease. And what they found was those who were suffering from insomnia, plus having short sleep hours, um, were four times at risk for um, getting an acute MI. They have a sense, I had a question about that, especially with the cardiovascular risk. Do they have a sense of how much of that is attributable to maybe undiagnosed or underdiagnosed um, OSA? Yeah, that's a great question. You never know in these epidemiologic studies because you're not necessarily studying um, all these people. Um, OSA in and of itself is associated with cardiovascular detriments, so certainly that could be one mechanism. If you have OSA, you might have poor quality sleep, you might suffer from insomnia, you might have short sleep hours. All these things might um, propel into this uh, poor cardiovascular outcome. Um, but studies have suggested even without um, OSA or concomitant disease that just having short sleep can be a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It's also a risk factor for weight gain, we know, um, and metabolic disease as well, you know, like insulin, um, insulin resistance. So this morning I woke up with some cold-like and allergy-like symptoms, and I didn't, sleep, <laughs> I didn't sleep really well last night. Uh -huh. Is there an association between, like, poor sleep and common cold-type yeah. symptoms? Um, first thing I want to ask, were you out late last night? No. So? Okay. <laughs> I, I, that's um, not me. Not, no, no New Orleans. Okay. Um, so, you know, there is a theory that poor sleep, um, you know, adds to poor immune function. Uh, we think that, you know, some of the, um, like, TNF and IL-1, these are um, immunomodulators that they're secreted during sleep and may help us fight off infection. And with the lack of sleep, we may be dysregulating our immune system. Yeah, the, the study that I had seen on the common cold, I, it, it was in Journal Watch like a, within the past few years, and it was, the, you were just as likely to, I think they were infecting people with, like purposely exposing them to rhinovirus. That sounds and then horrible. People were four times more likely to have symptoms of rhinovirus if they were sleep deprived. Less so than six like, hours. You know, there was, the, the rate of infection wasn't different, but the sleep deprived people were just more likely to experience symptoms. Experience symptoms which I, I thought was interesting. That sounds um, like a horrible trial. <laughs> it is a horrible trial. Who signed the consent form on I, that? Yeah. I don't, <laughs> it's probably med students. Yes. The IRB was sleeping on the job. Yeah. Uh -huh. the, <laughs> was that a I, yeah. You're better than that. <laughs> that was something I'd say. I, the, but I think with this patient, Mr. S. Andman, uh, he... His, his, I think maybe as far as carrot and stick type things, he's interested in testosterone levels. How do you, like, when you're talking to a patient about sleep and trying to convince them, or when you're talking to a patient about, you know, in the primary care office, they're, they're, it's very common for people to come in and be like, I feel like crap, I want testosterone. Um, as a sleep doc, how might you answer that question? Well, I would promote sleep because actually um, testosterone levels um, are associated with sleep duration. 
So um, testosterone becomes, uh, is secreted during your sleep. It starts uh, peaking about three hours into your sleep, and then it, it probably peaks maximally at um, you know, early morning hours or so. And studies have shown that if you're sleep deprived, particularly in the first three hours, so you have more of a sleep onset type of problem with sleep, then your testosterone levels are much lower. Um, so, so enhancing your sleep may enhance your testosterone. Um, and as you mentioned before, sleep disorder breathing, or OSA, has also been associated with um, low testosterone levels. Um, but actually, studies have found that it's not really the sleep apnea per se that causes low testosterone. It's, it's actually obesity. So obesity and OSA often go, you know, go together, and that's why we think that it might be associated. But actually, losing weight increases testosterone. And CPAP, that has really been un, you know, equivocal in terms of uh, testosterone levels. So... So we're talking to, to Mr. Sandman, and he's sure he's not sleeping well during the week, but he's, he feels like he's probably doing okay because he sort of catches up on the weekend. So he, just, he sleeps until 10 o'clock, um, and he wishes that he was more like his wife, who apparently can sort of function on four to six hours of sleep a night. So, so her name is Mrs. Andman? Is that I hate this so much. <laughs> you can't, I'm so angry right now. Um, so I, I guess two questions in terms of when you're counseling patients, how much sleep should they be getting, and then can he catch up? And I, I think we know the answer, but if you could sort of speak specifically to how, how unfortunate he is, that would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, um, so the ASM, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and the Sleep Research Society um, have you know, produced these guidelines of uh, suggestions of uh, amount of sleep. And for adults, you know, it's generally recommended that we get greater than seven hours of sleep every night. Um, you know, it, it differs with children and adolescents. They obviously need much more sleep. Um, and, you know, sleep is a bell curve, you know, the sleep hour need. You know, we say on average normal, normal healthy people might need eight hours of sleep. Um, but, you know, there's some people who do fine on seven hours, perhaps even six hours. Um, and there are also those who need more hours of sleep, but like myself, <laughs> nine, hours, <laughs> nine hours at least. Um, or, or, you know, maybe even 10 hours. But I think what we know is that the sort of tail end of that bell curve, you know, maybe less than five hours, greater than 10 hours, I think that's pathologic, and we have to look for either sleep disorders or we, we know the consequences of the short sleep time. And can he catch up? So can he bank on the sleep on the weekend and sort of undo his sleep dead? Yeah, um, you're exactly right. So sleep, you know, the process of sleep is, is twofold. One is, you know, acquiring a sleep debt. The longer you're awake, the more sleep drive you have. Um, but it's also a homeostatic function of, of your circadian rhythm. You know, nighttime and daytime, there's a 24-hour, you know, promotion of sleep and promotion of uh, alertness. Um, you can um, function by um, banking on sleep. There is some studies that suggest that if you, you know, try to keep healthy sleep schedule, maybe get a little bit more hours of sleep or prophylactic naps, you might perform better or do better even with a night of sleep deprivation. Um, but just to know that sleep deprivation is cumulative, so you, know, you're, you have to make it up at some point. But, so you're, are you saying you can make it up? Like let's say that I sleep on weekdays, I sleep five hours a night, and then on weekends I try to sleep 10 hours on Friday, Saturday night. Is that, can that, does that have like beneficial health effects? Am I catching up or is it just, am I just? <laughs> just theoretically here, just, just. What do you want to hear? No, 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 <laughs> tell me. I want to, I just, be honest, just yeah. be like. So, <laughs> you give it to me straight, huh? Yeah, well though we can catch up sleep is actually, um, a reflection of your poor sleep during Monday through Friday. That's right. what it really means. It's not that you're going to do better on you know Saturday, Sunday, sleeping 10 hours. You're going to do better Monday through Friday, per se, but just the reflection that, boy, you really lost some um, sleep during your weekend. So you, sh you should feel better. You know, it, we, we call this actually social jet lag. 
Um, so what happens is that on the weekends, you know, people are staying up later, waking up later, and then, you know, Monday comes around, time to go to work, you have to change your schedule, you have to go to bed earlier, but it's a little bit more difficult because you've been sleeping in, um, you've been sleeping later, uh, and then you have to wake up earlier as well. So you feel crappy Monday, Tuesday, you might start feeling a little bit better Wednesday, Thursday, but then Friday comes along and then now you're doing your, your rotated schedule again. So that's what we call social jet lag. And we actually, you know, it's very common in adolescents, for example, um, and we tried to counsel, uh, you, know, you know, parents about, you know, how, how detrimental that could be for their performance and health. You, you mentioned having uh, young daughters that are kind of teenage, getting into the teenage years. I don't know if they're exactly teenagers yet, but with, as far as teenagers and sleep, they tend to want to stay up later, right? And, but then they have to wake up earlier for school. As a parent, I'm sure there's lots of parents listening. Is there any, any specific tips or any approach you have to kind of that circadian rhythm issue? In, in teens? Yeah, you know, I think what one, you know, societal misunderstanding is that, you know, teens are like many adults and they only need eight hours of sleep. Actually, they need much longer hours of sleep, at least 10 hours, maybe even up to 12 hours of sleep, surprisingly. And adolescence is a time where um, a, lot of, um, a lot of them become phase shift delayed. So they start, you know, wanting to go to bed later and waking up later. That's sort of their, their natural rhythm that has, um, that has developed. And unfortunately, you know, society doesn't work that way, and, and school starts very early in the morning. Right. Um, they have to get up, but then you also have people, you know, they have homework, they have, you know, school activities, they have social activities, they have, my God, they have electronics <laughs> that yeah. they can do all night. So they end up staying, later, so, staying up later. So, you know, adolescents are frequently sleep deprived. Um, you know, my, my suggestion would be, you know, to, to you know, obviously avoid electronics during the nighttime, try to develop a routine sleep schedule, be firm about the, the you know, bedtime. Um, having said all that, there are people who are really pathologically delayed. I mean, they really suffer, and, and as a result, you know, their school suffers, their social life suffers, you know, they develop depressed mood. And those patients we actually take in and, and actually do some um, therapy to help um, restore their circadian rhythm or advance it. And we can do that with melatonin, we can do that with light therapy. Um, these are highly effective ways, um, and it's actually really quite um, effective and easy to, to shift somebody's circadian rhythm. You just have to be pretty um, disciplined about it. So they, you're, you're shifting them where they'll, they'll have a more normal bedtime, 9 or 10 o'clock, something like that, instead of 11 or 12 o'clock at night. So that way when they're later, having yeah. to get up at school for 8 a.m. Yes. Actually, mm. California just, I don't know if the audience knows, but recently passed the, um, a, a law that prohibits uh, middle schools from starting um, before 8 a.m. and from high schools starting before 8.30 a.m. And it was really driven by initiatives of, the, of some sleep specialists up in, in Stanford, actually, who really advocated for um, these late school start times. And I think, you know, there's a movement towards that because we see how yeah. detrimental it is to our children. Yeah, I heard some of the wider adoption of that has been prevented by just the, the flow of society, as yes. you already referenced. Like, it's, if, if you have some kids that are starting school at 8 a.m. and then your high school kids are starting at 10 a.m., mm -hmm. it just kind of throws off mom and dad getting to work and... Whatever. Yeah. So it's absolutely. There's a lot of resistance for practical reasons such as that. You know, right. who's going to watch my kid early in the morning? I have to drop them off. You know, and they have sports as well, and that gets delayed, and then they can't, you know, compete with other teams because you know they're off on their schedules. So there are a lot of practical barriers. Um, you know, but I think we have to balance, or there has to be a cultural change, actually. Well, fortunately, uh, in the next part here, I think you're going to just tell us all about how we can fix this. So, <laughs> sure, Mr. No <laughs> Mr. S. Andman, uh, he he tells you, you know what, Doc? I 
at night, I just kind of sit there thinking about all these stressful things going on in my life, and uh, it's just so much easier. Like, what it helps me a lot. I I take some diphenhydramine. Uh, that makes me drowsy. Usually, chase it with a beer or some wine, and uh, that's the only way that I can fall asleep. So, how do you counsel patients about that when they're they think they're getting better quality sleep by using these these agents that make them sedated? Um, does that actually translate to better outcomes? Yeah, <laughs> that's really a very common scenario, people self-medicating for sleep. Um, in terms of um, my counseling and what I tell these patients, you know, I, I don't resort to these sedatives, certainly not to alcohol um, for improvement in sleep. Actually, the, you know, the first-line therapy um, recommended by, again, the ASM or the American Academy of Sleep Medicine as well as um, American College of Physicians is um, a CBTI, actually, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. That's probably the most effective means of treating um, chronic insomnia. So I would actually ask him not to take these things, um, especially over-the-counter uh, medications, which have, you know, the antihistamine effect is what, what makes people drowsy, but it also has a lot of, you know, anticholinergic effects that could be toxic, you know, in the, in the future, you know, produce palpitations and, and jitteriness and things like that. And, and I've, I've, all the society guidelines seem to also recognize it's really challenging. Like, first line is CBT, but then also it's almost impossible to get people into CBT. Yeah. So what, what sort of, what resources do you have for patients who, who maybe are having trouble sort of getting an entry um, into someone qualified to give them CBT? Are there any at-home resources they can use? Like online CBT type yeah. things? Yeah, there is, there is a movement toward online CBT because exactly for what you say is this access of care. I mean, CBTI is an intensive program. It's not just a one-time visit, high and by. It's, you know, four to six weeks of intensive contact and, and coaching. Um, and like you said, even in our sleep center where we have a dedicated person doing this, I mean, she's months backed up. Um, sure. So it is hard to get people into this. So there are, uh, they have been developing online CBTI, and there are actually some studies to suggest they're quite effective in, in treating uh, chronic insomnia. Um, so shut eye is a common one, if you've heard of that. Um, Sleepio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sleepio, have you heard of that? And there's a free one actually put out by um, the Veterans Affairs um, Association, or Veterans Affairs VA. Yeah. Um, it's called the Sleep Coach, and you can download that and use that. Um, so there are resources, certainly. Um, you know, I think if, if it's a, a significant problem, you should probably you know, seek help or assistance coaching with um, a professional. But yeah, CBTI online is, is, is the way to go. And I, I feel like we, I mean, we lean heavy into the sleep hygiene thing. So I guess two questions is, what's your, if you had the one absolute, the thing you must do or you must not do in order to sleep, what is sort of your favorite sleep hygiene tip? And then the follow-up, I guess, is, a lot of times patients come back to me, yep, I tried all that doc, I'm still, it's still not working for me. So I'd, I'm curious to what the evidence actually is behind sort of the, the sleep hygiene things that we recommend. I don't know why I use quote here. <laughs> <laughs> Sit on my hands. The sleep hygiene things that we recommend. So sleep hygiene, yeah, that, that just basically um, sums up, you know, the, the kind of basic proper sleep promoting behaviors you can do at home. So, you know, um, avoiding screen time, dim light having a bedtime routine, doing relaxation exercises prior to sleep, um, you know, avoiding caffeine close to bedtime, you know, doing your physical activity as much as possible earlier in the day, avoiding naps. I mean, these, these are um, what you call basic sleep hygiene. 
Um, and, and, you know, everyone should do that. I mean, I think it promotes good sleep health. Um, in terms of the evidence behind treating chronic insomnia, unfortunately, sleep hygiene alone is insufficient to make a difference. Um, you know, and in fact, even a lot of CBTIs will bypass sleep hygiene, um, assuming that, you know, you've already sort of been educated about that and, and you sort of are on the road to do that. So sleep hygiene is, is something that can um, improve sleep in people who are already good sleepers. Um, sleep hygiene can also help people with acute insomnia or situational insomnia, you know, something that's aggravating them for the, for the day or the week. Um, but for chronic insomnia, you know, you really need to do a formal CBTI program to get an effect. So you, you mentioned NAPS. How would you counsel this patient or any of your patients on the utility of NAPS? How, how would they take NAPS? Because you, you had mentioned that sleep hygiene is to avoid NAPS. Is there any utility? Yeah, so naps, you know, generally you want to preserve your sleep debt, your sleep drive till nighttime so you get a better uh, consolidated sleep at night. So I tell them to avoid naps, you know, and that those are the naps where you're dozing off in front of the TV or anything like that. But, you know, some people really feel this strong urge to nap during the day. I can speak from experience and you just have to put your head down or maybe you're trying to, you know, you're going to you're planning on driving somewhere and you're just totally drowsy and sleepy and and it's not safe for you to drive. In these scenarios, I do recommend that you take naps and prophylactic naps too before you drive. Um, generally, they should be kept short, you know, 20 to 40 minutes. Those, ha- you know, those types of naps have shown to help with alertness for at least two hours after the nap. Um, anything longer than that, you risk uh, what we call sleep inertia, sort of this residual groggy feeling for some period of time. And, and certainly you should expect that it interferes with your nighttime sleep if you're going to take a longer nap during the day. When I was in the, when I was in the Air Force, they would some of the pilots, the counseling they were, would give to them is they can take up to two 20 to 30 minute naps a day and then they had some like high energy foods that they could eat. Um, I think like handful of nuts or something like almonds was like a, a stimulant, stimulating mm-hmm. food and they had all sorts of ways they were trying to sort of like hack sleep I guess. Yeah. Um, but apparently like you just feel real groggy if you sleep longer than that, right? Like it's, if, if you, or if you sleep less than three hours or something, I don't, I don't know what the cutoff was exactly. But if you have like a nap that's like too long but not long enough, it might make you feel worse. Is what they what they told us. Yeah, no, you're right. So, let's see. Some I don't know that we do. You want to get it, Paul? Do you want to get more into like the mechanics of CBT, or you want to move on to some of the like over the counter meds? Oh, and let's, let's just cut to the. What pills. do you want to do? Let's move on to the Z drugs. The Z drugs. <laughs> yeah. Good. So, uh, so, so he he actually wants to know about Z drugs at this point. What what is the utility? Is it uh, are, are there benefits? Are there risks? Oh, for sure there are uh, benefits and risks. Um, the Z drugs are so the non, um, non-benzodiazepine hypnotics, Ambien, Lanesta, Sonata by their brand names. Um, they are generally used, or I generally use them for um, short-term um, use for insomnia, usually acute insomnia. Again, I just want to emphasize that the first-line therapy for chronic insomnia should be um, you know, CBTI. You know, we may use sleep medications as an adjunct or as a bridge, perhaps, um, but generally I want my patients to be sleeping well on their own without medications. So you say short-term, is that up to 12 weeks? Is that four to five weeks? I think that's what they're FDA-approved for, isn't it? Like, it's, it's short time. It's very short. I think it's even shorter. I think it's like uh, seven days, I want to say. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a matter of days, but that's not reality, right? We always so, use these yeah. medications and... The person that's on like 12.5 of extended release Zolpidem for like the past 10 years, uh, yeah. I, I tend to see that patient. Yeah, okay. right. And, and they're clinging to it, and they're clinging to the medication. Yeah. 
actually when when I was uh, at Cashlack overseas with Cashlack military, uh, <laughs> we uh, there, there was there was one individual who had taken an Ambien. Uh, in this case, not me, who was uh, riding a bus naked and could not remember that the next day. So one of the fu- the things that I talked to my residents about is actually the Ambien Walrus. I think it's pretty funny, but it's also a way to counsel your patients. And in my own personal story, there you can see there it says. Uh, couldn't sleep last night, so I took an Ambien, first time. What could be the harm? Woke up to five dirty tablespoons, a half-empty jar of family-sized peanut butter, and an empty jar of marshmallow spread. So now I know. Gross. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, as you know, the side effects of Ambien and the Z-drugs is, is um, most worrisome is the parasomnias, the nighttime sleepwalking, sleep eating. I mean, we've had patients report they get in their cars, which is not a very good thing. I do want to make a note of Ambien in particular because it's one of the most common um, Z drug or sleep aids, uh, prescription sleep aids out there. Is that um, we have to be cognizant about um, using it in men and women because um, in women, uh, actually, the the studies have been mounting that showing that women metabolize Ambien differently, so they're more likely to have really high levels after eight hours um, to the point of impairment. They've done studies of driving simulation and shown that women um, with Ambien on board, you know, from eight hours ago, still have um, significant driving impairment compared to men. So actually the FDA came out in 2013 and recommended that for women, um, you should stick with the lower dose of Ambien, five milligrams, or the um, long-acting 6.25 milligrams. These are young women too, not elderly women. I feel like I remember there was a couple of meta-analyses that came out a couple of years ago that sort of looked at, at Zolpidem and some of the other Z-drugs, and then actually just showed, like, just increased all-cause mortality, and, like, it didn't, I mean, it was a little bit dose-dependent, but not so much. Like, how whomped up should we be about that kind of, about, about those studies? Is those something we should take into consideration when prescribing, or do we have other more realistic concerns, like sleep driving and sleep hot dog eating? Hot <laughs> <laughs> Or sleep butter eating. Yeah, I think I, I've, I've seen that data, and there's some data suggesting that it might be related to, you know, um, dementia, cancer, um, but I don't think it's such hard, fast data that it's really changed clinical practice so much, and we still prescribe it, again, with the idea that hopefully it's a short-term or a bridge um, to, to CBTI or better, um, better sleep habits. And I, and I think, and then I'm sorry, man, I don't mean to beat this to death, but I think one of the themes of this show is us sort of selfishly using it to then inform our own clinical practice when we don't know how to do something. Um, so for the patients that come to you who have been on Zolpidem for a bazillion years, mm-hmm. and it's just that the Rubicon's been crossed, like, do you have any practical tips in terms of how to kind of get the patients off of that, or do you even need to try at this point? Is, the, is, it, is it worth even trying to pursue that? Yeah, actually, um, studies have shown that CBTI can help with people, um, you know, decreasing the dose or, um, you know, de-escalating or getting off of um, chronic uh, sleep aids. And so I think CBT is a great um, option for, for patients who want to try to get off Ambien, chronic Ambien. And oftentimes at that point, if they've been using it for 10 years, 20 years, it's really not probably a, not a physiologic effect and more of a psychological effect. Um, I actually had a colleague who had a patient, um, she was telling me that, you know, they were working on weaning off the Ambien and, and she was doing very well with CBTI as an adjunct. And she came to a point where, you know, she still needed that Ambien by her bedside. Um, but all she would do is lick it and put it by her bedside. <laughs> and it was highly effective, but that's sort of the lowest they could go. So she took it, you know, that's, that's fine if that's like, what you That need. sounds like a wild, a wild success story. I... <laughs> It's like the the Winston Churchill martini where you drink gin and then look at vermouth. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask you, uh, we're going to ask you about a bunch of meds and we're going to open up to the audience for for questions in a bit here. I wanted to ask you 
Is there anything that you've learned about sleep or sleep medicine in the past couple years that have really surprised you or changed your practice that you wanted to share with the audience? Um, yeah, you know, my area of interest is, is really phenotyping um, sleep disorders and particularly sleep disorder breathing. And what I've come to realize is the way we define disease is very important in, in the type of people we capture and diagnose and even studies and outcomes. So. For me, um, a concrete example would be um, sleep apnea in women. Um, the way we define OSA right now is, is basically by an AGI, right? It's one number. How many apneas, hypopneas are you having per hour? It's such a gross metric, um, and we bucket patients based on this metric, but it turns out that that's probably not the most important thing in terms of health and, and treatment and outcomes. And so for women in particular, um, you know, their sleep apnea looks different than men. Women are more likely to have what we call REM-predominant OSA, so they have a lot of sleep apnea during REM sleep. Um, and why is this important? Well, you know, just studies in the past three, four years have come out that suggest that, you know, all that cardiovascular Ill outcomes that we're seeing associated with sleep apnea may be more related to REM sleep apnea. And so that means, you know, and we, when we compare men to women, you know, men traditionally are at higher risk for sleep apnea as defined by total age, and they do have more sleep apnea during non-REM sleep. But when you look at REM sleep, men and women match for age and match for BMI, they actually have equivalent severity degrees of REM AHI. So now you have this whole group of um, category of, of, of people, you know, women in particular, who may be underdiagnosed or, um, you know, undertreated because, you know, we're not looking at the REM AHI, we're looking at the overall HI when we decide to treat patients. So, um, you know, I think that's where my work is really um, and my interest in the past three to five years. I hope to better service, you know, um, people with sleep disorder breathing by, you know, figuring out, you know, how, how it affects differentially um, different categories of people. I guess at this point, there's, are there any specific treatments to target like REM, the improved sleep apnea during the REM, REM periods of sleep? Yeah, there's no specific targets now. Right now, it's you know CPAP. That's the mm -hmm. main go-to. I mean, I know that they're developing um, medications to treat sleep apnea. If you believe that, and and we'll see it down the pipeline. Um, but not nothing targeted to REM, REM OSA. Okay. I the the other things that we wanted to ask about. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of questions about the various various drugs, um, but before I forget about it, I wanted to, to find out if in your practice, do you, have you found any of the sleep trackers? I know they make like a ring that you can wear, the, the, the watches, and I've heard maybe even mattresses are going to track our sleep in the future. What Are you using any of that? Do you think it's helpful or is it just kind of... <laughs> Well, so there are a lot of commercial um, wearables, as you say, uh, trackers and apps that measure sleep. And actually, um, there have been some studies comparing these, and, and some of them are, are pretty good at detecting sleep. Um, so the Fitbit, uh, Fitbit 2, I think it's called, um, um, oh, I'm blanking on their names, um, the Dura-Ring, um, the Sleep Sleep Smart, I think it's called. There are definitely uh, many apps out there that, that claim that they can measure sleep. And it turns out in these studies, and the, there are just you know a few studies as of last year that compare these devices, um, they're pretty good at detecting sleep, but poor in detecting wake. So the device might say you're awake, but you're really actually asleep. Um, and on all of these devices are really poor at detecting the the different sleep stages. So they claim to you know, know when you're in deep sleep versus REM sleep. Um, studies have just found that that's not accurate at all. So you, you could be driving yourself crazy if you're one of those people that looks at the numbers and is 
Yeah. Like someone you... checking their blood pressure a hundred times a day and it keeps right. going higher and higher. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. Why is my sleep getting worse and worse? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not uncommon to have a patient come in and, you know, you're asking them questions, they feel great, yeah, you know, I go to bed this time, wake up this time, I feel great, so why are you here in my office? And then they'll pull out their phone and say, <laughs> my phone is telling me I'm not sleeping well. <laughs> that, that reminds me, my iPhone claims that uh, it blocks the blue light, and uh, is that, does, that, does that mean I can just read in bed? Uh, or so, Kindle, you know, yeah. all these things. I mean, these are better options. Um, blue blocking, you know, devices or, you know, those blue blocking glasses that they have. Um, they are better than not having them in terms of light exposure and, and potential for keeping you up and, and delaying your circadian rhythm. Um, but really the best way is to minimize your light exposure, dim light, having dim light uh, during the nighttime. Okay. So paper books, paper books yeah, by candlelight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's that's yeah. what it is. They didn't have sleep problems back then. My house burns down. Um, <laughs> well, uh, how are we doing time-wise, gentlemen? We're at 8.15. Okay, 8, 8, so 16. we can, uh, I would like to give the audience uh, the chance to ask some questions. There's, there's a mic there and over there. Maybe not over there, there's a mic there. Uh, so if anyone has questions, if not, we have a bunch of questions from Twitter that we can go through. Uh, not surprisingly, there's definitely a question about CBD oil, but we'll, we'll let the, we'll see what the audience we'll see what the audience has to not say. Not from Twitter, just from Matt. <laughs> Are you sure it's not you, Paul? My whole suitcase is filled with CBD oil. <laughs> All right. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm a Yeah, I think um, what you'll find, I mean, I think we all need alarm clocks, unfortunately, <laughs> um, because we have to be on schedule. Um, but what you'll find is if you sleep to a, uh, if you stick to a regular schedule and your alarm is set at the same time every day, maybe three or four weeks into this habit, you'll find yourself waking up much more easily um, at that time that you're set your alarm to. You'll probably fall, you know, be sleepier sort of eight plus hours or earlier, um, so you'll have an easier time getting to sleep. And if you allot yourself eight hours of uh, bedtime, then you're guaranteed to get you know, um, normal arch sleep architecture and uh, normal sleep. You know, that kind of begs the question, what if you wake up like an hour before your alarm goes off, yeah. and you're like, you know, I could get up, I feel okay, <laughs> but I'm going to go back to sleep. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So I would, I would base it on how much sleep you just got prior. So <laughs> if you're waking up after two hours of sleep, you probably would benefit from that extra hours of, uh, hour of sleep. But if you're, you know, you've been in bed for like seven and a half hours, um, and if you wake up and you feel great, then I'd say go with it and yeah. wake up and start your day. Hey, how's it going? Uh, my name is Kellen. I'm a current sleep fellow. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in my practice, which is something that I uh, sometimes have struggled of exactly how to handle the situation is kind of cultural sleep issues. Um, right now I'm doing a pediatric rotation, so co-sleeping is something that I've seen parents do and their bad sleep is fragmenting their child's bad sleep. And then I guess maybe more in the adult population would be somebody that says, culturally, I have always taken my siesta. You're telling me not to take a nap, and, but that's something that in my culture I do. Um, what are your strategies in taking 
approach to this? Yeah, that's that's really a great question, and um, I think you know there is more interest in understanding sleep disorders, sleep complaints in different uh, cultures, different races, ethnicities, as well as gender and different age groups as well. And and I, I agree. I don't think um, you know. Um, you know, one size fits all kind of strategy. So I would listen um, to the person's sort of cultural background and even daytime needs. You know, you sometimes you're even dealing with people, you know, because of necessity who are shift workers or, you know, who, um, you know, have irregular um, sleep habits. And, and sometimes you have to just work around that. Um, so I, I'm not um, pretty militant about, you know, no, you can't sleep with your child or, um, you know, um, you can't have your siesta, but you know I would listen to what their goals are, what their lifestyle is, sort of what their routine is, and sort of build my sleep strategy based on that. So I mean, in terms of co-sleeping, it can be disruptive, um, but you probably can you know have them do environmental modification to make it less disruptive. Um, siestas again, you can you can you know I wouldn't say you know you shouldn't do a siesta, but maybe you know keep it short, maybe earlier in the day, maybe you know right post postprandial kind of where you get maximum benefit, these kinds of things. Yeah. you guys have any favorite questions from the Twitter cohort here? Since it came up, there's actually a question about shift work, and particularly our patients who work nights. I guess the general question was what kind of anticipatory guidance can you give those patients, and what kind of counseling do you do about the, the known cardiovascular risks, which I feel like is kind of unavoidable, maybe? But I mean, you would know better than I. So what do you tell those patients who, who work nights? Yeah, you know, surprisingly, 10 to 15% of the U.S. workforce are shift workers. Um, and shift work has been shown to be associated with more cardiovascular disease, but also cancer, um, surprisingly. And, and the, um, it's been, de actually, shift work has been declared uh, carcinogenic, probable carcinogenic. Oh, yeah. Newsflash to all the residents out there. <laughs> um, so, so, but you know, it's at, we're a 24-hour society. Um, you know, we need shift workers. Um, so, how can we help them improve their sleep and um, improve their functioning during during work time? So, you know, if they can't, you know, I always first ask, you know, about, you know, are there other options? Can you move to the daytime? Um, but if that's not an option, then you know, there are strategies. For example, you know, if you're going to do irregular shift work, you can ask your manager, for example, to put you on this clockwise rotation, so that's a little bit late. Later, you know, you're taking the later shift works um, sequentially so that you can sort of adjust that way easier. Um, I also uh, talk about, you know, how to keep a regular sleep schedule um, during your work days and your off days um, because that'll help you cope better and get better sleep when you're trying to sleep during the daytime, for example. Um, you know, you're never going to get the best quality of sleep when you're a shift worker. Um, you can try to uh, adjust your circadian cycle to sort of correlate, but it's not going to maximally correlate to your shift work, especially if you're a third shift or a night, you know, a full night shift worker. Um, so, you know, they might. So I'd say, come home. You know, put blackout shades. You know, minimize your light. Wear sunglasses as you're as you're walking around during the daytime. You know, really try to fool yourself that that your day the daytime is actually your nighttime. Um, and then they'll probably get four or five hours of sleep um, when they come home from work. And then you know they go about doing their daily activities. And then I also say, you know, maybe take a two hour to you know if, if a little bit longer right before you right, right before you go to work to so optimize your performance. Um, and then you tell them, you know, make make sure you're doing your critical tasks earlier in your shift, you know, when you're more likely to be awake. Um, also, if you have breaks during the night, to, to use them and take short naps um, 
as, as ways of um, coping. Um, also, moderate caffeine use uh, during the nighttime can help with nighttime performance as well. Yeah, it seems like a tough thing. I mean, like, you know, they, they've got to... Some people just have no choice when right. it comes to that. What is moderate caffeine usage? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's intentionally left uh, subjective because, you know, some people, one cup of coffee and they're, you know, bouncing like, off the wall. Oh, we've covered this many times on the show. Yeah, yeah. The, the answer is as much coffee as they want. It's never been shown to be harmful right. in any way. Yeah. So I think they're good. Yeah. We, we did have a bunch of questions. Um, this is one from at... Philo Elwood uh, says, "Does melatonin work?" Just open ended, but maybe I'll direct it a little bit more. How do when you if you are going to prescribe melatonin, uh, who do you prescribe it to? In what dose and when do you tell them to take it? Yeah. So melatonin is is really you know it's obviously a, um, one of our organic hormones that we we secrete during the night. It helps regulate our circadian rhythm. So I mostly use it for um, treating uh, um, circadian rhythm disorders. But as you know, it's over-the-counter, and people use it a lot as a hypnotic to help them fall asleep. The dosing that they do off um, over-the-counter is actually really super physiologic. Three milligrams is probably the lowest I've seen, um, but they sell in five milligrams and 10 milligrams. But you really only need 0.5 milligrams, so 0.5 milligrams to have an effect on your circadian rhythm. So, um, you know, we're talking whopping super physiologic doses of melatonin that is being used. when so I, when Night Float gives my patient 10 milligrams of melatonin, <laughs> of melatonin at 3 a.m., yeah. it's not good for them? Well, it's pro- I, I don't know if it's good or not good for them, but they're definitely getting a whopping dose of, of something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, the way I use melatonin, again, is for shift work, but if, uh, not shift work, I'm sorry, circadian rhythm disorders. Um, but if, if uh, you know, you're using it for, or if a patient is using it for insomnia and is insistent on using it, I would just make sure they're taking it at the same time every night. Because you know the way you get in trouble is they take it you know you know at 8 p.m. one time at 11 p.m. the other night and then you know 1 a.m. the right. next night then what you're doing is really foremostly affecting your circadian rhythm and you're going to have more trouble sleeping. Um, you know in general in terms of safety profile I don't think we have really good data. In fact, um, you know if anything the lack of melatonin may be may be of concern. Um, melatonin decreases quite a bit um, with age um, and especially in women after menopause. And that melatonin um, decrease has been linked to maybe LH surges that might induce hot flashes, for example, and disrupt sleep. So if you give melatonin to um, postmenopausal women or menopausal women, um, it doesn't really decrease their um, hot flashes, but it's been shown to improve their mood and their sleep quality um, for what it's worth. Um, kind of a piggyback question. Have you ever used or seen patients that are using 5-hydroxytryptophan, which provides a donator molecule for serotonin and thus melatonin? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the concept, right? It's a precursor for, um, for serotonin and melatonin. Um, and, you know, I don't know what to say about that. There's not much data, let's say. Um, it works for some people, then I, I let them continue with it. If it's not working, and truthfully, most often it's not. It's just something else they're, they're desperate to try and, and to use. Um, I, would, I would help tell them, you know, we, can, we have better options than that. Does melatonin cross the, the blood-brain barrier by itself? Does exogenous? Mel- melatonin, yeah, exogenous. Exogenous. Because um, I, I know 5-HTP does. I'm yeah. not sure about melatonin. Yeah, it has to because it's affecting the... Um, your circadian rhythm. So yeah, I'm envisioning that it does because you know it's releasing the pineal gland, for, right. You know, endogenously. Okay. Oh, it looks like we have a question, and then we'll have to start to wrap up. Yeah. Piggyback question. 
is there a particular brand of melatonin? Oh, oh my God. I was so afraid someone was going to ask. <laughs> um, Thank you, sir. <laughs> actually, I personally don't have a brand I know of, but you know, we actually have a list in our center for our patients that our pharmacists did some um, research on. Um, because you're right, you know, a lot of them are, you know, they're not FDA, you know, cleared, and they're um, sort of God knows what else is going on in, in those uh, preparations. Melatonin in each pill in different companies ranges from zero to three hundred. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no regulation for it. So. So um, I have a, a pharmacist who has a, a nice list of, of brands to give to patients, and you know, if you want to catch me offline, then I can I can try to get that for you. But I'm sorry, I can't spew out the names right here. Unless they're going to sponsor us, I think that's yeah. good. <laughs> okay. Our sponsor's my pillow. Do we have time to sign off? Sure. Okay, Paul, you want to do the honors? Let's do it. Oh, so first, of all, thank you so much. This is spectacular. But this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Is iTunes still a thing? I think, I think, iTunes I think is, they're phasing it out, actually. Yeah. So on whatever you use. <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. That's right. Or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this, to our producer for this episode, Santa... Santa... <laughs> Sarah Santa Phoebe Roberts. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Where Santa came from? <laughs> and his elves. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams uh, on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbertelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, and thank you to Stuart for the theme music, which will in post be playing <laughs> over top of our voices right sound now. Great, you guys. Uh, our great guest. Do you want to sign off? Sure. This is Christine Wan. Thank you for joining me, and um, this has been very exciting. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thanks. Bye. Oh, hi, Paul. Hey, 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 Paul. I got a pun for you. No, you don't. Got it. <laughs> okay. Kill the mics. <laughs> I had one, but I'll sleep on it. Thank you. Thank you for the fake laughter. Yeah. All right.